listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. You can catch up with news, projects, interviews, and much more at architectureanddesign.com.au, where you can also subscribe to our newsletters and magazine. And today we have with us a long-lost friend, dare I say, a man that you all should know well, Tone Wheeler, architect and founder, I believe, of Envorona Architecture, and owner, dare I say. And Tone today will be talking about where the architecture profession is broken, a rather heavy subject for a few days before Christmas. It will be a discussion of how every step in an architect's work is broken, from the university education to finding honest clients who understand the architectural process and value to councils and their ridiculous requirements to consultants, to builders, the wonderful building commissioner, certifiers, in other words, the whole box and dice, which, as I said, is a very heavy, very heavy subject for for a rainy day a couple of days before Christmas. Regardless, welcome, Tone Wheeler, to Talking Architecture and Design. Thanks, Brinko. So... Where the architecture profession is broken, um, I'm assuming. I'm assuming you may have an opinion or two on, on this. So please, where do, where does well, joke aside, where does one begin? Because I mean, you you could use this as a template for just about any profession, but architecture being so integral in our lives and becoming more so. Um, where do you start with the? Well, I, I I start personally. Okay, fifty years ago was oh. the first time I started work as an architect, as a, apart from education. I was working in an office. Um, because work was hard to find, I was in Canberra working for the Commonwealth Government Architect Designing Schools. Schools. Okay. 50 years ago. And now, my own practice, in that interge- intervening 50 years, it's that story of the, the, the frog in hot water. <laughs> You know, that things have changed, and they changed not dramatically, but they changed little by little by little in every step and every part of it to the point where I believe I would use a much more pejorative term to say what's happened to the profession at this point. It could be interpreted as an old man's whinge, mm-hmm. but I think it, and it could also be misinterpreted by the young as, you know, reminiscences of a boomer that, you know, Things were better in my day, but I think it seriously, we have a really big problem with the profession, and I and it's because when you first start work, you realise it's both a process and a product. That architecture itself is a process that relies on a whole lot of other people, and the working, the consultancies, the collaboration that you have in that process, but it's not the actual product. You know, it, it's not the final building. You need somebody else to be um, involved in the process to build the building. Right. So you're just a beginning part of the process. But that is the easiest bit to manipulate and change. And look, I'll run you through a few of the changes that's happened. Let's start with clients. The You mean, you mean the people that pay the bills? The, well, they don't always pay the bills. That may be the first problem. <laughs> I, th- I think there are changes in domestic clients, residential clients, which we'll come to later. But I think it's easy to understand what's happened in terms of the professional client. 
It used to be that the Department of Education would ring up and say, I want some schools, or the, uh, the Attorney General would commission you to build courts if you were looking at civic architecture, or there would be corporations who'd want a new headquarters, and it would be a board, and they would admit that they didn't know very much about architecture, but they would go to an architect to seek advice. Now they don't. They employ a professional intermediary between the board or the government or whoever it is and the architect to control the architect so you don't get the excesses. And I'm talking here about two particular brands, facilities managers, who are employed by corporate firms often to manage their facilities and then run how they work. And then the second part of it is project managers. Now, I think almost everybody who's ever listened to any of my podcasts or read anything on Tone on Tuesday knows I've got very little time for project mm-hmm. managers. That you know, my, my take on PMs is they're the sort of person who will promise you a baby in one month by using nine women. It's, that, <laughs> it, it, it's this impossible thing that you have to deal with. Project managers snuck up on us. 50 years ago, you talked directly to the client. Some 30 years ago, some of that broke down. Part of it might have been architect's fault. We weren't very good at talking to clients. We tended to talk in our own language. Um, Archie speak. Archie speak. And and, um, there's a recent book called Architects, Verb, (laughs) about speaking, um, by by a Dutch architect who works, um, uh, who's written quite a number of books called Rainier de Graaf. And what he's talking about there is that architects tend to talk in a language that's away from what the, the common person in the street might understand. And it tends to be, you know, there's an elliptical way of talking and so on. That may well lead to the fact that boards and government architects and private clients just couldn't understand what people were saying, what they're trying to do. And they therefore get an interpreter in. Now, the interpreter becomes like a post box. They receive instructions from it and then give instructions and it's usually to dumb things down. And along with that process of project managers came VE, which stands for Value Engineering. Okay. And I'm hoping there's a huge number of people listening to this nodding their heads going, oh, you know, VE is the bane of our life. It's like, you know, the building's going to cost too much. We need to do some VE. Well, what's the value engineering? And both words don't work. They don't understand the nature of value because most project managers are in that old thing about, you know, they know the cost of everything and the value of nothing. And there's no engineering as such involved. Sometimes called VM, you know, value management. There's no management involved. It's simply cost cutting by another name. And so even before you've got to the stage of looking for an approval and so on to go go forward, your design is now being compromised. Some of that is good. There are some architects who've moved out of architecture directly to become client-side advisors. And that's, I think, I think that's a good thing. I think it's also partly the fact that there isn't that much work for architects. We're actually graduating many more architects than we actually need. But I'll come to that later on when we talk about education. So you've got this difficulty then that the building is not being the subject of a discussion between the client 
and the architect it's it's now multi-headed it's hydra-headed and you know, the old adage that um, a camel is a racehorse designed by a committee and that's what we're getting an awful lot of camels out there that's the first issue I think the second issue is competitions there is now a desire for big public buildings big major institutions and so on to go for a competition but the competition is now being run by professional project managers managing that as a competition and as a result of that the kind of submissions that you get are required to be much more detailed and much more thoroughly engineered out for proof that it could be built or proof that it will meet the budgets and so on than it, it used to be. So, you know, we're talking about Sydney Opera House would never have got up. Those little sketches from Jorn Utzon and the, and the fact that, you know, the, the budget that was set for it was no way that it was ever going to meet it. In hindsight, none of that really matters. But we've now got a series of competitions being run where particularly for local councils, and I'm talking here in particular about what happens in New South Wales, which we have a dreadful track record of yep. doing competitions and then you know, changing who wins the competition. Um, and I think that's to the detriment of the project. You know, I'm thinking of what happened for the Sydney Olympic um, design for the village, the Sydney Olympic village itself was the subject of a competition they couldn't choose between the top five. They asked the five to collaborate together. They came up with this, what was really quite an innovative way of doing a village along a spine with the things feeding into the spine so it had a mm-hmm. means of transport. It was in a kind of mini version of a, of a Todd transport-oriented design. What happens? They get scared about whether they can deliver it in time, never mind that you know, <coughs> there's a seven-year window in here, and they give it to a firm to guarantee that it will get built and they build a piece of suburbia, you know. And so what happens is that it goes out for tender and lend lease. No names, no pactual. Walks in and says, we can deliver this on time, and they do. And it's really ordinary. Only the apartments designed by Bruce Eels are a standout. The rest of it, even their architect-designed houses by very good architects, but they're dumbed down to the point. Take another competition that was run for... Barangaroo, mm-hmm. um, not called that then, you know. Um, the the, hu- the West, Hungry Mile, right? The Hungry Mile, as it was. Again, a competition um, is held. Again, a winner is decided by a team that includes professionals and judges and so on who've got yeah. long expertise in this. And again, it's awarded to a team, which by the way includes Philip Thales, who was one of the architects that yeah. won for the Olympic Village. And what happens the scheme is overturned. The scheme itself was an architect's vision of how you would make a city. Streets, low-scale buildings, respect the water's edge, let the city step down towards the water, Mm -hmm. all sorts of urban designs. What happens, of course, is that the big end of town waltzes in and says, no, that's not going to be good enough, and they've got a champion in Paul Keating who says he rips it up and acts like Baron Houseman in part um, to say, look, that will we'll have a completely different way of doing it. And so you get high-rise buildings at one end of it. Yeah. And uh, and then a, an unsolicited offer comes in to put in a high-rise building, the 
Chris Wilkinson designed tower for the casino, um, which, to give him his credit, Paul Keating opposed that. But you mean you mean Packers Pecker? Packers Pecker yeah. is it's it's a result. It's a lovely piece of architecture in completely the wrong place you know, to, to be on the water's edge. But it's a result of the the um, what the the system, if you like, or the process of it being overtaken by people who are not expert in mm-hmm. urban design and uh, architects being sidelined for it, you know, and, and hence my term for it is Baranga rooted. But there are many other examples of it. There were several competitions run for the Museum of Contemporary Art in Sydney and yeah, remember eventually given to a local architect with a budget about one-fifth of what was being offered and made it great, you know, Sam Marshall made a great fist mm. of it. As we've gone on, more and more of those competitions have become ones which are done to a select group of architects who are known to be sort of well-behaved and they'll produce a very detailed submission for it. And I think clients have become very risk-averse and I think there's some very ordinary architecture as a result of what's happening with client side art. You know, the, the clients have said, oh, look, you know, we really like something that's a little less bold in here, even though they want bold vision. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's you know, whole swathes of very ordinary architecture being built in Melbourne, in the Docklands. Um, I think there's been um, in Green Square in Sydney, for instance, there's an awful flight from good design by also bold design, I should say, by you know burying things. The library was put underground with only a little stump of a tower and then the, the swimming pool was likewise pushed aside and sort of half buried. And that, That's been the case in the City of Sydney competitions. A lot of stuff has been, well, you know, let's Prince Alfred Park, for instance, let's kind of um, not let anybody see it. We'll grow plants over it, right? We'll, we'll green it up. Well, that's Sydney, isn't it? I mean, we're burying our roads, we're burying, we're burying our railways, we're burying everything. So why not bury libraries and, and swimming pools, right? <laughs> the underground city, the underground city, be. yeah. Yes, Paolo Soleri, eat your heart out. I think that's one aspect to it. When you get to the point of having a design and you've met the client's interests and you've responded to their issues, then you've got to face the running order of councils. And I've got to say that I think the way in which councils relate and react to a submission that's made is kind of inversely proportional from the distance from Martin Place in Sydney. And I put DAs in in Perth and parts of Western Australia, in Queensland, um, Tasmania, and the reception for that has been, I think, quite reasonable and the way in which the process is handled. They're they're different in different places, but my practice is primarily based here in in Sydney and done quite a little bit of work in in Melbourne as well. But in Sydney, it's just completely broken. There are 51 councils in the greater Sydney area. So you've got 51 fiefdoms that look after 
their own patch of land, supposedly they know what it is. But most of them have exactly the same kind of NIMBY issues, trying to protect what's already there against any kind of new work, even though everything that's there was new at one stage. It's a different system up in Queensland, um, and I think um, the fact that there are only four or five councils between Tweed Heads and, uh, and Noosa mm. is, is, is one advantage that you have there. But it's very similar in Melbourne and Sydney. The bigger cities, the two bigger cities, have this thing where the councils have a computer that says no to take Little Britain. It's, I guess it's only architects who actually work at that coalface who know how bad it is that you submit something to council and there is an almost immediate refusal ask for irrelevant additional material. When, let's go back 50 years and we were putting a, a house design through a local council, it would be one or two A1 or B1 as it was in those days, sheets of paper, plans, elevation sections, some details, uh, some um, levels, on, on the site, some local data. And you'd go in and it could be just done as a building approval, not even a development approval. And you got an approval within, you know, a month or two months. Right. I've seen very... I've, we looked up the documents for some very well-known houses mm-hmm. um, in Sydney and in Melbourne and the amount of documentation for them for approval is extraordinarily small. Yeah. In, in terms of what's there. And that means that the design can be built in accordance with that drawing because the, you've worked it all out and it's also fairly modest. You've got to remember that all the things that were done 50 years ago that we admire in the work of you know the great architects of that time, you know, Robin Boyd or Michael Dyson or Ken Woolley or mm. so on, they were quite modest houses by today's standards Mm. what's happened now is the houses get bigger the thing gets more complex but the council's response to that is to require any number of reports because exponential is what you're saying well if you've got to have a full survey with a whole lot of detail about the neighbors because the neighbors have rights of objection Mm. unfortunately the rights of objection are interpreted by neighbors to be the rights of refusal so that you run the problem of having NIMBYs and notes, by the way. Um, NIMBYs, everybody knows, is not in my backyard. Notes are people who say not over there either. So you've got people who defend their, their village, their town, and so on. And it's quite unequal. You've got very small councils who are under-resourced, who have a very small patch and defend it to the nth degree or very large councils who are faced with developments happening in their area, which are really urban developments, rezonings and so on, that lead it to have kind of a urban area, like a sub-city in it. This is much more common than it is in Sydney than it is in Melbourne, but nevertheless, there are big developments. And the councils are local councils being pushed into that, uh, that larger scale of development, you know, Classic case in Sydney is Willoughby Council. 
Right. I guess that's the northern suburbs northern of Sydney. Northern suburbs of Sydney, you know, near Lane Cove, right. near Ride and so on. And all of a sudden, Chatswood, which is one of the major railway mm-hmm. stations on the line, becomes a centre for development and they say, well, we will develop our town centre. Now it's a high-rise of apartments of and, yep. and it's become a stretch of office buildings that run from... <clears throat> St Leonard's, Crow's Nest, St Leonard's, which are other suburbs nearby, all the way up into Chatswood, it's become a kind of an urban combination. The combination of those things leads to a conurbation that is not able to be properly organised by the same people who are approving house plans. And so you've got this rift within the councils that they're dealing with issues which are not set up to deal with. Roads, rates and rubbish, that was their remit. Um, But now it's going to be something that's much bigger. So my frustration at councils is doubled up by the fact that the codes that you're working to have become ever more prescriptive. So we now have state-based codes because the state wants to have something about uniformity of design value. They have council-based codes, and many of those codes in councils have to be endorsed by the state. And then you've got local codes that can apply to a small suburb or even down to a, a particular street. And then those things are overlaid one over the top of the other. So you're trying to do something, let's say, in apartments and increase the number of dwellings that you've got. And there's a code now in New South Wales that's been around for 12, 15 years, which is called SEP 65, State Environment Planning Policy 65. Everyone knows it as the Apartment Design Guide. It's a guide. No, it's not. Councils use it as a code. If it recommends certain things, that becomes the law, L-A-W law that you have to... Mm -hmm. And you can see it now that there's a kind of mass-produced, standardised apartment building. And you can look at it and go, that was done in 2016 and that one's 2018 because of the design features that are within it. That's for another podcast about what are the loopholes to get around it. But let's say you don't want something built in an area, just make it heritage, even if it's just a timber cottage. Like Haberfield. Well, like... The whole suburb. The, like the whole of Balmain. The whole and of Balmain, we, yes. We, you know, I was standing in the suburb with a heritage architect the other day, who shall remain nameless for this, who proudly put his arms out and said, yes, I'm responsible for turning Balmain into a heritage district. And it's a you know, complete heritage conservation area, the HCA. And it just means it's impossible to do anything effective. So all of the innovative work that would have happened 50 years ago, all the apartment buildings or the great civic buildings or the great innovative designs that we did are no longer possible. You you have to squeeze it into something that was built in the 1880s and you have to replicate the planning, at least, of it, even if it's not the details. And it becomes more expensive, though, doesn't it? Oh, the whole... Both the process that the architects are going through is, is... blown out in costs. Mm-hmm. Another reason why the project manager steps in and says, well, I can make this more effective because 
I can sideline the architect and manage this process with council. Often means, you know, simply oh, we'll, we'll take the top story off and, you know, yes, we'll have, um, we'll, we'll, we'll clad the whole thing in brick and whatever you want to make it look as if it's part of the heritage suburb. Um, I think that process has become so difficult for architects to, to manage because you have no dialogue with the council. On that point, just to ask you quickly, do you think that that's now become open to abuse? Like, the reason, sorry, the reason I ask you is because I've seen you. You spoke about Balmain, mm. and, and and I mentioned Haberfield, and I've seen, I've seen things being declared heritage that I know were made twenty years ago in in, in some guy's garage. Um, so why why I'm asking that? Do you think that do you think this rush for herit heritageization, if that's the word to use, um has resolved things that things that have gone wrong that, that should never have been uh, declared heritage. Oh, absolutely. Um, there are many examples, and I have one. <laughs> um, I was I was asked by my then bank manager, mm. knew I was an architect, could tell from my low amount of salary and um, and, and income. He said, "I have a problem." in a terrace which is being used as an Indian diner. And I said, oh, I know that Indian. I buy my Indian food there quite often. He said, well, the health department's closed it down. So I went to have a look at this building and I walked in. And I knew the front counter. In fact, I knew the people behind the counter. And then he said, oh, walk behind me. The kitchen itself, the timber floor had collapsed. So they'd simply brought in a whole lot of dirt and tamped it down as you would in India. It's the sort of Kolkata solution. It was rammed earth as the floor of it, and they were sleeping on bare mattresses upstairs. I mean, it was horrific. If anybody had seen it, you'd never buy Indian food there. Mm. So we set about changing the building mm. and bringing it up to health standards, but at the same time, we had to make it safe, and it had, had the front had been pulled out and made into a glass shop front. And the council requested that it go back to me much more inconsistent with the other buildings alongside it. My client was Portuguese, and so he had a whole lot of tilers and renderers at his disposal, and he did a brilliant job of it. But we invented windows on the front of this thing with, with a series of um, renderings around the windows, mm -hmm. sills, lintels, and so on. And there was a series of projected verandas further down the street. So we just stuck this projected veranda, you know, the cantilevered veranda over the street on the front of it, got approved, signed off and so on. This is about 25 years ago or something I did this thing. And it turned into a pharmacy and it operated very successfully. It was a um, quite a well-made building now, quite mm -hmm. safe. Then I got a call from a client who was a couple of doors up from that saying that they're going to, I had done some renovations to the offices in that. You know, it's the usual thing, young architects working in an area, you know, the inner west was my patch. You know, I right. kind of knew the inner west of Sydney, which is a very rich and diverse area. From, mm -hmm. 
you know, Glebe, Annandale, Newtown, Marrickville, um, what we came to term Irksomeville, but that's another story. Um, and my client says to me, we're going to build a building on that small lot of land next door and including the chemist, the pharmacy shop that was there. He said, well, there's already lodged a DA for it. And um, so I met with the architects and they said, you know, this is what we've done. Yes, we could accommodate some of the things that you're looking for. Um, and I said, well, why didn't you just bowl over the pharmacy? They said, oh, it's a heritage order. It's got a heritage order on it. Oh, dear. And I said, it's, you know, it's, it's only 15 years oh, old. Yeah. But because it looked yeah. like it was late 19th century, it immediately began. No one did their actual heritage report on it. Yeah. And I told them what had happened with it. And they said, we wish we knew. We've had two years at council trying to get this building approved. Yeah. Eventually that other building got modified. My clients were happy that they got more of their sunlight into their building and the thing was modified, but it's been built. Now, that process should, should never have happened. There are codes for every council area that, that zone it for different activities. Unfortunately, that's the... The, the post-Second World War idea of zoning things apart. You know, you put the light industrial over there, you put the medium-density housing over here, you put suburbia over there, you put the schools over there. You separate everything out. It's, you know, pushing all the pawns apart on the chessboard. The If you've got the kind of technologies we have now, you can make a plan for what you want your town centre or your suburbs to look like and you could actually take it site by site and say, this is the height, this is the development, this is the envelope in which we want to see our development. You could do that. About 50 years ago, it was being proposed by a guy called Ralph Knowles, who wrote a series of books about his way into it, by the way, was, was to do with solar access. He wrote a book called Sun Rhythm Form which was trying to show that the way where the sun was and how it shone in North American cities mm. should give rise to the form, you know. Form follows sunlight, wow. if you like. Okay. And wrote these very interesting books about how you could take a whole city, a whole block, and shape the building so it got sunlight into that building and sunlight into the building behind it. I think you could easily extend it so that you say, this strip of land, six storeys tall, this kind of density, rear lane access, six stories on the street, steps down to the back, or whatever. Mm-hmm. <coughs> You've got a way of having certainty about what that development will eventually look like. Admittedly, it's hard in some respects because the 60s and 70s ran rampant when people just said, oh, we'll just put a block of flats right there. Um, and you've got some places in the lower North Shore of Sydney where there are eight-storey blocks of flats, eight storeys because that didn't require sprinklers or double stairs or so on. So eight storeys was maxed out in brick and concrete and there's two of them and there's a single house House. in between it. Now, now I'm not saying that planning was very good 50 years ago. I think planning was atrocious 50 years ago. But, uh, and it couldn't happen now, but the pendulum swung the other way whereby you cannot do anything with that house. I mean, I've been watching for a while of one of those very small buildings sandwiched between a couple of very big high-rises and the struggle they've got to try and build anything yeah. that might 
add to our stock of housing in between. I've seen this in Parramatta as well. Um, there's been a couple of but a couple of examples. Um, we've gone to Parramatta for a number of reasons over the past couple of years, and they'll have apartment blocks and a house, <laughs> like it, it, usually a weatherboard house, um, probably from the 1940s, I guess. Um, and you do wonder how how you how have we got to a point where that's okay? I think the the heritage is my number one bane. Okay, in all of that. And I've written in time on Tuesday about Willow Vale, I think it was called in yep. Parramatta. And it was a very nice house with a bay frontage to it, two-storey verandas to it, but nothing really special and completely without its curtilage around it. And they're going to take it apart brick by brick and move it, which, of course, was never going to happen. So they took it down brick by brick, and I presume that pile of bricks is sitting somewhere because they've now said they're not going to assemble it. Mm. But what amazed me was that I was working at the time on renovations and repairs to a heritage house in the Hunter Valley, which was not only identical to Willow Vale, it was a better version of it, but it still stood in its curtilage. You know, it still looked out over the farm that it was built for and it had the orientation that, that matched it. And that should have a heritage, does have a heritage order on it, and that's quite correct. So we're following the heritage guidelines and what we would do to it. I have no reason to keep a timber single-storey cottage sandwiched in amongst two- and three-storey buildings, houses, all the way down the street, simply because it's old and it's made of, of timber. Yeah. The issue for me in one of these ones is that the timber building was completely out of scale, was completely rotten. We had lots of reports from tell you from the floor, walls, roofs, completely wow. falling apart. And as a result, the council said to us, you can't knock it down and put a second story and make it part of the row of terraces in the rest of the street. You'll have to leave the timber building where it is and the floor space ratio that you've got, put it in a two-story building in the backyard. I mean, when you're crazy, that'll just lose privacy, overshadowing for everybody else in the backyard. They said, no, we're preserving the heritage building by making everyone else's amenity terrible by building. So that's what we designed and that's what got approved and that's what got built. Right. It's a two-storey block with uh, rumpus rooms and bedrooms and so on in the back garden, a courtyard in between, linking between it. Because most people will know that most of my houses are courtyard houses. I'm trying to do that. And the timber building in the front, the builder erected a big scaffold all the way around with the netting and everything else to protect it. The neighbours were thrilled. It was going to be kept because they liked the view of the house. And uh, he knocked it over completely, just pulled it, kept all the materials, particularly the corrugated iron on the front veranda, mm. poured a slab where the termite-ridden material was, built a timber frame exactly identical to what that house was. But he used treated timber, right. so the thing's not going to be <coughs> su- suffering from mould and termite attack. Built the house exactly the way it was, put the corrugated steel back on the roof and the front veranda. Everything else was new. Hey, presto, pulled the scaffold down, and everybody in the street was clapping. He kept the house. It was fantastic. Look, it's the 500-year-old axe that's had three heads and four handles. Yeah. Know? 
it's it's a it's a joke. The house is now much more secure, much more long lasting, but the amenity of it. But there's such is the difficulty in dealing with councils on a rational basis that there now has to be a higher authority. So in Victoria and New South Wales, more and more architects are taking it to as a tribunal in, in Victoria and a court in Sydney. Right. Specifically set up to deal with this with its own set of rules. Now, part of the problem with that is that most developers and wealthy individual clients know that you're going to get a much more much faster and probably much fairer outcome by going to court really so what you do is you lodge an application with council you wait in new south wales terms you wait two months and then it's a deemed refusal council hasn't replied to you you apply to the court and the court then makes the council reply to you with what's called a SOFAC, a Statement of Facts and Contentions. And that forms the basis of a mediation that you're going to have. The mediation takes place two or three months after you've lodged. Whereas you might be waiting for years for the council to come back to you. But the court forces them to make... And then you have a mediation and we we would see either 90% of our projects get negotiated at that mediation for the lawyers and technocrats out there to section 34. Most of it, it gets mediated. Occasionally there isn't and we decide to go to a full court hearing and then that takes another six months and costs a lot more money and there's lawyers and expert witnesses. But what has happened though that is the, the flip side that younger, smaller practices, less wealthy clients are understanding is if your council is under-resourced and I've heard that there's a sort of standing open um, desire for another 10% planners in every council. Every every council is said to be under-resourced right. by 10 or 15% with planners. So they don't have enough to deal with what they've got. If that's the case and the planners that you've got, the good ones, are suddenly being forced to address the things that the court have demanded that you look at. Mm -hmm. And you have to determine a response, a design response, this statement of facts and contentions, this SOFAC has to go back in, in a certain time frame. Then they're all working on that. So if you don't go to court, your timeline is now stretched out even further. It's not uncommon from a simple house alterations and additions or a new house that is completely compliant to take more than a year to go through council. And so the client is no longer paying for the architect to do the design. They're paying a management fee for this process for the architect to reply to continually ring up and harass and try and get... The, so what makes it worse is that the client is not involved in that, but the client expects the architect to explain all of that. Right, okay. So I've heard from a very large number of smaller practices and that I meet with in the networks, and they say the bane of their life is to stand in the shoes of council and explain council's ridiculous ideas and ridiculous comments to clients. 
and intercede and say, and the client says, well, why can't I get an approval? You know, my friend next door got an approval. Yeah. You know, why can't I build a three-story concrete tower? The guy down the road has got one of those. And you can't get counsel to explain why. The architect can explain why, but you actually take the opprobrium of the counsel onto your shoulders in explaining that to the client. So that's that's a really bitter part of the process. It should be idealised as a discussion between professionals. Yeah. I'm an architect, I'm registered or whatever, I've got a certain amount of qualifications and skill and knowledge. I'm talking to somebody who's got an equal amount of knowledge and skill about what the best design outcome for that site might be. Given that I've got a client and I've got needs for them, but we're trying to find an outcome that will be the best for society generally for that site. That's not what's happening. Right. Idealised world, that's happening. And occasionally that happens. We, Interestingly enough, I get it in Queensland. Right, because you actually get to talk to one of the councillors on council as a person who gives you a background to what council itself would expect on that site. It's... It's not a professional. It's in fact the amateur, as it were, but it's always somebody who is acting on behalf of society generally as an elected councillor, with backed with staff, backed with knowledge from staff, and you can do that negotiation. It's much the same thing in Western Australia is that you have a much higher degree of respect from councils. And the councils themselves are much more willing to tell you what it is that their, their vision for their suburb might be or for their, for their local government area. That, that, I think, is the thing that stretches the project out and stretches the tension with the client. So once you've got a development application, the problem or an approval... Of, of whatever it is in, in different councils, different states, the nexus between your client and yourself is often stretched to the point where even on larger scale buildings, there is a discordance there that means that they sack you and get another firm of architects who are just involved in doing documentation or, worse still, they novate you to the builder. And this is a process whereby they say um, the builder will now pay your fees for you to document the building in accordance with the builder's needs for what they need to get to build the building. And it's a way for the client to say, you know, I've had it dealing with you. Mrs. Mrs. and Mr. Architect, because you've taken so long to get through the councils and it's been so difficult as if it's somehow our fault. And I just want you to go away and work with the builder because the builders know what they're doing, which, of course, is a complete conceit because they don't because so many of them are now just graduates from a construction course at a university and they've never set foot. They've never laid a brick or nailed in a stud or done anything of, of practical on site. And so they are full of project managers called construction managers. <laughs> and the construction manager then says, I need these drawings by this time. 
right? And you say, well, you, where's my consultants? Well, we'll decide who the consultants are and we'll send you the information because we're in control. Meanwhile, the client comes through the back door and says, oh, by the way, um, that detail that we talked about in the DA, I really want it to be amped up to be this. And you say, well, I'm not working for you anymore. I'm working for the builder. Mm -hmm. But the client says, well, I'll tell the builder that that's what I want and you'll draw it. And the builder says, okay, we'll draw that. I say, well, it's going to cost more fees. Well, no, get the fees from the client. So you're in this terrible situation whereby your fees are dumbed down for it. You're under pressure to do what the builder says. And this is one of the reasons why New South Wales in particular and Victoria to a lesser extent, but New South Wales has this problem with building construction quality, is that the builders are now in charge of the architects, they're getting the architects to do the documentation, and it's the nexus that the building commissioner, David Chandler and his team, want to break. They want the architect to be in charge of the documentation, independent of the builder. Architect is being put in a horrendous situation. Let's say you do a full set of documents... And then the client says, the builders come back with a price. It's twice what we said we, we, the agreed budget would be. And you say to them, well, the building is 50% bigger and the building costs have gone up. And by the way, you've chosen this builder who's you know, notoriously expensive. So the building process, which should be a joy for architects, it, you know, they're wonderful. And you go on site and you see this thing that you've been working on for a long time, this creation. This is what we do. We make space. We make... Mm-hmm. The structure of the building goes up and there's this point which every architect knows that you look at the building before it's clad and you see the building like a wire frame. Mm-hmm. It's like it was in the SketchUp model or the Revit or the Archicad model. You know, it's just like this, there's this thing. And you can see all the spaces all at once. Mm-hmm. And architects look at this thing and like, oh, oh that's, just, that's just really beautiful. And the client goes, when will it be finished? (laughs) So I I find the joy that I used to have of going on site and seeing things built is tempered by the fact that there will be 50 questions from, you know, to go to 10 different consultants on things that are making the building so complex to build now. That eight-storey block of flats... It didn't have any stair pressurisation and single stairs could even be open. Just had solid core doors that closed with a closer and no air conditioning. The balconies were very simple. Now you've got at least 10 consultants. Everything's got to be air conditioning. The balconies have all got to be super waterproofed. They've got to have fall protection and so on, obviously. And it becomes massively complex. And... The builders would much rather have the architect in the tent under their control because they don't want the architect outside of it telling them what they want to do. But that's mm. what good traditional building practice is. So each one of those points is, as to return to the theme at the beginning, each one of those things is where a frog has got a little bit more difficult, a little bit more difficult. Clients got more difficult with project managers. The council's got much more difficult in their demands. The process of getting it approved and then the process of getting it built has become much, much more difficult. Is it 
terms of a solution, bar, bar architects setting up their own lobby group, uh, it sounds like there, has to, there should be some legislative change here as well, but that's a separate... Oh, we're not, we're not isolated from this. You know, when, I, when I'm travelling in the United States or in the United Kingdom, you can see much the same problems. Happen. Really? Yeah. But not to the extent that it is in Australia, where we, you know, we, we f- tug the forelock to whatever uh, instrumentality or, 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 or government research says. I, I don't see that you can unstitch this in any easy way. So it's another failure of, you mentioned the US and UK, so it's another failure of of neoliberalism where we've just added extra experts. Layers layers and layers layers of complexity. Oh, complexity, yeah. Is that that what this is? Yeah. Well, the first thing you want to do is say Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, Perth, Newcastle, Brisbane, or the whole of the southeast Queensland corridor, they're single entities. There should be some organisation that sets a plan for the whole of that city. But the multiple councils are never going to accept that. They've, they've balked at having a set criteria for how many houses have to be added to their council areas. And they've refused, just by passive aggression, by saying, well... This whole area is heritage listed. You can't put any apartments in there. And that area there is not well serviced by public transport. And this bit over here, we, you know, we've got a, some form of a prohibition so that you know, we can't accommodate all your extra apartments. But yet there were apartments built and so on in that area, which have been very successful. One thing that I think would change the way in which cities were planned is if there was some organisation that looked at the city as a whole. They've tried it various times, but it's been very superficial. What you want is an organisation that has the power to say, we will put an envelope study for the whole of the city for 2035, 2050, 2075. These will be our targets. This is what it will be. And provided you stay within that envelope study, which allows for amenity, sunlight, solar access, overshadowing and so on, um, car parking and other things are all arranged in it, then you can design knowing that that is an approvable structure, an approvable project. And that centrepiece of restructuring how councils work then makes the front end of it, dealing with, with clients, clients no longer come to you and say, look, how much can I get on this site? Can you squeeze the lemon? Can you get me 10% more? Right? Which is the common res- re- response, which everybody wants. Look, I just, I just paid overs for this site is what you'll hear. Right? The client comes to you and says, look, I just paid more for this site than I want. So I have to get 10, 10 more units on the site. Get them, get them for me. You're a good architect. You, that's what they say all the time. Don't believe them. But I, you get this pressure... Whereas if there was a known, reliable indicator that that site's carrying capacity of a building is such that that it establishes the value of that site from a developer's point of view, look, it'll be very difficult. Property is always a difficult thing in Australia. But if you fix that central bit of what has to happen with the building, then the front end gets fixed, then the back end gets fixed. Mm-hmm. Because the builders know 
you have to build to what's on those plans because that's what's approved, not you know sneak a little bit of extra in, you know, try and get a, um, a some sort of certificate for the the works that you've done. Some of it I don't think you can go backwards with, Branko. My my end of it is in the nineteen fifties when I was there. I think society was looking very much to try and build a city and build suburbs and build buildings for the betterment of society. It was houses were for people to live in. They were dwellings to live in. Schools were an amenity to be provided to the local community. The school would could have multi-purposes so that, that once it's built, it could be um, used by the community for other activities, theatres, sports and so on that the civic buildings and so on that you were designing were intended for the use of the community, the libraries, the halls, that apartment buildings were there to provide good quality accommodation, rental or ownership. There was a this sense everything now is about property to the point where the individual house owner thinks of it as a property. It's my investment. If I own the house, I'm a property developer. Right because I'm wanting the price to go up. I want to add value to it. We used to have a motto that if someone came into the office and said, um, I'm, I'm wanting to develop my house, but I don't want to overcapitalize. <laughs> We'd say, sorry, you're, we're not the right architects for you. Yeah. Because we design homes for people, not for overcapitalization or capitalization. The state government's now selling off sites with schools or other things to it. They've sold off a lot of the civic areas, the civic buildings. All of that's become a property deal. And the rise of the small-scale property developer who might own two or three buildings and then wants to get into the apartment market, that's a huge area of development. And it's all driven by money, Mm -hmm. all driven by... Not by, I want to build a good quality building for my my owners. So I'll end with one example. There's an apartment building, small apartment building that we did, uh, got approval from the city, not easily. They wanted to change the design and none of us in the office think that the design that they came up with that they forced us into is any better than the original design we had. But we ran with it to get an approval. The, the client is building it, he's he's a build to rent. He's gonna right. hold it, right? He's a small scale developer, but he's got enough to he discovers that the NDIS uh will allow rentals for apartments that are high physical support, HPS as it's called. Mm-hmm. So he designs the building in such redesigns, it gets us to redesign it mm. so that it can be rented to people with high physical needs, mm-hmm. people in wheelchairs and so on and need lifting things out of bed. And improved living. So there's a mixture of these apartments. But it's all for... He does a couple of brilliant things. He does... There's a cafe downstairs. And he gets an operator for the cafe and says, how about we employ 50% of the employees of this cafe be people who are disabled or in wheelchairs from within the building? Mm -hmm. And why don't we make it, when we're doing that, disabled friendly? It's 200 metres from a local, very large hospital so right. it makes, makes great sense 
what the um, operators want is a small studio that the on-site nurse or carer can stay in overnight to look after anything that happens for the half dozen or dozen people living in the in the building. It's called on-site overnight accommodation. It's an NDIS thing. It, it, it does cover the whole set of rules. Do you think there's anything in the planning documents that allows for that? Council wants that studio, that basically a little sleeping porch for somebody. It's not their house, but it must be entirely in accordance with the apartment design guide code with its own private balcony and its own... I won't go into it. We're fight, we've been six months into this fight and at no point does the council acknowledge that the building is intended for people with disabilities entirely. It's at least for 25 years and that's probably the lifespan mm-hmm. of much of the building you know, in terms of bathrooms and kitchens and so on. And what we want is on-site an area for the nurse or carer to stay in. It's an unbelievably unpleasant fight. Mm. Long waits for them to reply to you about what it is that you're trying to do and no concession, none whatsoever. And... I think if you had presented something that said, look, we've got a building for disabilities in, in 1973, we called them cripples back then, but if it was a building for cripples, yeah. they'd go, well, that's fantastic, that's a great society move, that's a wonderful thing. By the way, we need a small, you know, 20 square metre room at the top of it with a bed in it and a bathroom for the nurse to stay. And they'd say, fine, that's fantastic. But you wouldn't have to have all this myriad bloody things that have been forced upon us in order to try and get that approval. The builders actually built the building. And it's the point where it's taken so long for this on-site overnight accommodation to be determined that he's basically going to be closing up and renting the building without the OOA, the on-site, mm-hmm. and have to come back and build it later. Later. Mm. Which costs more money, which is more difficult for the builder. Wow. <clears throat> Tone Wheeler. Uh, architect, entrepreneur, dare I say, and, and obviously slayer of all all things bureaucratic. Thank you. That was actually fascinating. Um, and it will be part of a series that we'll be running with uh, with you, Tone. So thank you very much for, for that for that enlightening talk. It's been a pleasure, Frank. Thank you. You've been listening to Talking Architecture and Design. Until next time, goodbye. I'm Branko Melodic and thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. You can catch up with news, projects, interviews and much more at architectureanddesign.com.au where you can also subscribe to our newsletters and magazine.